Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 155, End of Song, Beginning of Story. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by the Loopnittery at loopnittery.co.nz and Holiday Travel and Craftlet take you to London Bath and Wales, Fall 2010. It's 2010 already. I'm in shock. How does this whole passage of time thing work? I mean, I understand that the fourth dimension is time, but I'm wondering if time travels even faster then, or if, God forbid, as some people theorize, everything just happens at once. There is no linear anything in the fourth dimension. I really don't think I could handle that. This linear version is going fast enough for me. I am just maxed out with my time thing. I was watching Doctor Who with my sons, and so we were talking about time travel. And that was a complicated afternoon. (laughs) Too much, too much, too much math. Well, you may wonder why we are called End of Song, Beginning of Story. My my pathetic Louis Armstrong uh, impersonation there. Louis Armstrong, as many of you know, is in the musical version of the Philadelphia story, which is called High Society, starring Grace Kelly and Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and Celeste Holm, who is the unsung heroine of that film. She is so good. And she is hot. Okay, Anybody goes up against Grace Kelly and they're going to lose, right? But wow, Celeste Holm, funny, talented, smart, and hot. And you know, you just don't see enough of Celeste Holm. So it's worth a look. But Louis Armstrong starts the whole movie by singing the High Society song. And then at the end of song, he says, end of song, beginning of story. And that is actually where we are at in Flatland. I know you think that we have been listening to the story thus far, but we haven't. We've been listening to the first part of Flatland, wherein Edwin Abbott Abbott has laid out the geography and the social structure of this very strange world that is living you know, parallel to ours. He's taken his time and he's been very cautious and very careful because of what's about to happen. There is an encounter that is about to happen. And uh, today are the last two days, or the last two, sorry, the last two sections or the last two chapters before the encounter starts. Now, uh, the the satire kind of changes after this point, but I don't think you're going to mind because these two chapters are, I think, the kind of satiric kick in the teeth that especially women were hoping for. Um, and, you know, enlightened men. Why does it just have to be women? It's, uh, it's good. It's good. These are two really great kick-in chapters. I'm very excited about that. But before we get there, we have a bunch of stuff to get through. Uh, some of you have noticed and have emailed that the website is hanging and stalling. 
I have learned that this is because we are very popular. I purchased the domain because it said there was unlimited bandwidth. This evidently isn't exactly true. So I am wrestling with this and working through it. For now, I have redirected craftlit.com to go to the Libsyn page, which is ugly and boring and dull, but working. And while I've redirected that, I am trying to rescue, resuscitate, rebuild, refix, make it better, stronger, faster. I'm doing everything I can. It only ever happens when there is no time to uh, to do any of the kind of fixing work that I need to do. So I am I am aware, this is January 14th, 2010, I am aware that it's wonky. So I'm on it, I'm working, I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, we have a new pattern for you. This will be coming out with episode 155 on the iPhone application, and then it will be posted on the show notes along with all the regular information with episode 156. And when we get back to our prettier page, there will be a pretty little button for the new pattern as well. Until then, it's just going to be a link in the show notes, so you'll have to look for it. Um, I think that is the housekeeping information. If you are a new Craftlet listener, and there are many of you popping up all the time, uh, you can access all of the previous episodes from iTunes. If you need more than that and you want to download individual links, you will need to go to craftlit.wordpress.com and click on the library there. Those are hard links that you can download onto your computer one at a time. So if you're just missing one episode or you just want to listen to one episode, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get a player on that site. So unlike our prettier site, for now, it's just, it's just the links. Anyway, enough about me. How about you? Did you have a good new year? I hope you did. I've heard, you know, bits and pieces from some people who've emailed. So I have been reading the emails and they have been making me smile. And I'm, I'm really sorry. I haven't been able to write back fast enough. I feel bad. Um, especially because some of them are just lovely, lovely emails. So thank you for that. And thank you, too, for the holiday and end of decade and beginning of New Year donations. Um, especially this year, it was a hard, it was a hard time. And it, your support and your kindness and your generosity is just, it is overwhelming. And I just don't want you to think that it goes unappreciated when I can't write back to you fast. It's very, very appreciated. So in crafty world, I'm still finishing that last pair of socks for my aunt, but I have done something radical. I have gone back to my map of the world Afghan, and I decided that not only was I going to go back to the Vogue 2002 map of the world Afghan, but I was going to teach myself to knit backwards because it is in Tarja, and in Tarja means tangled bobbins or tangled strands of yarn, and um, therefore it means headaches and often saying things that one cannot say in front of children, so one knits on that when one is alone at night. I have learned how to knit backwards. I have also learned how to knit like Stephanie Pearl McPhee. It wasn't because of a Stephanie Pearl McPhee video, although there are two that I highly recommend. I'm not linking to them, though. You can find them very easily on YouTube. All you do is type in the yarn harlot and you'll see 70. There's the very famous one that Zabet did that has all the... Um, the 
she actually put in the angles and the math and explanatory stuff, and she put in really great visuals, and that was wonderful. But Stephanie does not show in that video, I've said this before, how she tensions the yarn. There's another picture of, or there's another video of her from over the shoulder, a little sharper over the shoulder, so it's almost like her perspective. Again, from the left. And that was useful because in that one, she's doing the armpit knitting thing and she was doing some kind of shawl um, at the speed of light. And that was useful just for seeing the armpit knitting, which you rarely see, but also seeing how she uses her left hand to feed the stitch onto the right hand armpit stationary needle. I know that makes no sense to you unless you're seeing the video. I'm just provoking you to go find it. There is a third very short video that some lovely woman took it looks like with her phone, at a conference, she or maybe one of Stephanie's book signings, Stephanie is knitting, doing her, her super fast sock knitting thing. This video is taken from the right, and she asks Stephanie how she tensions the yarn, and Stephanie shows her. Between that video and the one that I am linking to from the show notes, which is oddly on a Portuguese knitting blog, I, I don't believe this is Portuguese knitting, Portuguese knitting I thought was the yarn around the neck, I could be wrong. Please fill me in if I am. But uh, another woman who made this little video for her friend, she, you know, says hi to her friend at the beginning of it and does this really lovely, slow and detailed description of tensioning the yarn and holding the needles and how she feeds things in. And I got it. So I have been practicing my backwards knitting and my speed knitting. It was very exciting. I also practiced uh, intense speed crochet. I finished the afghan for my mom, which I'm very happy about. I put pictures of that up on the Mama Unit's blog. And that was lovely. And then, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do, and I think I mentioned this on the last podcast or two, I've been trying to spend my New Year's spinning some. And I did. I I finished spinning uh, one of those Blue Moon Fiber Arts socks that rock hand spinning kits where you spin your own socks that rock yarn and I made it and I'm so excited and my yards per pound actually came out pretty close to the recommendation it's a little thicker which means my socks are going to be closer to you know kind of anklety a little longer than anklety socks but that's fine because I live in Arizona and it's 70 degrees outside the rest of you are freezing your bums off we here are sweating and I'll tell you it's putting me in a foul mood (laughs) I really I really, really want some cold. I heard yesterday on the news, for those of you who are in the Southwest, that this is an El Nino thing, and that while the rest of the West Coast is suffering differently from El Nino, we here here in the Southwest, particularly the inland Southwest, are having this ridiculously hot winter, and that's going to give. Evidently, we are going to, God willing the creeks will rise. We are going to have a very wet late winter. So end of January, they said all of February and all of March might be nothing but rain. I will be a very happy camper. For one thing, we've gotten a half inch of rain. Normally by now we have three and a half inches of rain. I know that must sound ridiculous to those of you in the the Midwest and especially the Northern states, but the Sonoran Desert survives as a fairly lush desert on very little rain. So any docking of our rain supply is is bad. So I'm I'm very hopeful. I remain hopeful in the midst of blinding anger making sunshine. But, you know, come visit. <laughs> it's I missed Ebony. Ebony was here and visiting her her family in Green Valley and we came very close to seeing each other. 
within miles of seeing each other. She visited a yarn shop that's around the corner from my house, but she wasn't feeling well. So I, I actually have to thank you for not getting me sick, Ebony, because that, that would have been very, very, very bad because it would have gone straight to my lungs again. And that would have been the end of the podcast. Anahad, who you may recall, I talked to when we were reading Frankenstein, who is a former student of mine. He just released his third book. You know that 10 Things You Need to Eat book that the guy who wrote the eating book before wrote? Anahad's the co-author. I'm so blown away. So I have a link to Anahad's new book. Very exciting. And I also have a link to something called the 3 slash 50 site. This is, it's an interesting site. I'm not going to tell you too much because you really just need to go read about it on your own. But it's um, kind of like the, uh, the handmade pledge. It's the same kind of idea, except it's really trying to save brick and mortar businesses in our towns. And I cannot tell you how important I feel this is because really I would just go on for days and you'd get bored. The 3050 site does a nice job of it. I won't need to say any more than that except please visit it's I think it's one page and it's very compellingly uh, created and designed so it's it's a nice break you know if you need to just go wander around the web for a little bit and, and give your brain a break uh, because you know I know a lot of us we work really hard to shop at our local yarn stores rather than going to catalog stores that are convenient but they undersell our local yarn stores. And of course, there's also that whole, it's like, you know, going to a yarn store and touching the stuff is part of the experience, just like going to a bookstore and smelling the books and, you know, getting to flip through the pages and look at the typesetting and graphic design and all that stuff. And as we head into our discussion of Flatland today, I have a a very distressing, I think, Um, Harper's article that I've linked to from the show notes that I would love to have you read and then spread around the world as fast as you can. And it's, um, well, I'm not going to give too much away, but it's kind of the the problem with trying to quantify a liberal arts education. Um, And not, not just a liberal arts education, but, you know, quantify art and poetry and theater. You know, why does this stuff matter? And of course, those of us who are in it or in those fields tend to say really wishy washy things like, because it makes us better people. And, you know, there's a whole cross-section of society that sneers at that and thinks that that's just kind of useless because it doesn't make you any money. Um, this, this article, it does yeoman service at answering the, the call for, the cry for uh, embracing and remembering the importance of a good liberal arts education, which as you'll hear today, you know, should include math and science. It's not like it should be one or the other. It's like the whole language phonics thing. You, dude, you're going to need both. You're going to have to sound out words and you're going to have to have sight words. So, you know, whatever, right? So, hmm, on that whole math thing, though, I also put a link to a funny comic from the, um, oh, what's it called? XK xkc7 oh i can't remember anyway it is a funny funny little centripetal force joke for those of you who are in the sciences i cracked up and if you aren't in the sciences but you go visit it i urge you to find out what it's about because you'll be surprised it's good it's good i have found many websites for those of you in the uk if you are traveling to the uk and you are gluten sensitive i know gluten huh 
How fun. If you are gluten sensitive and in the UK, there is an enormous support system set up for you. And I have links to that page. But more importantly, the good people at the Camera Guide. That is the Campaign for Real Ale. C-A-M, Campaign, R-A, Real Ale. These people have been putting out camera guides at least since 1987, the first time I went to the UK. When we were there, we traveled around. We went pub to pub to pub. We never ate at fancy restaurants. We didn't have the money to. We were lucky to be in the UK and Scotland at all, but we did have our camera guide. And they rank the pubs by expense, by quality of food, by whether or not they have a homebrew or a local brew, and um, by how good their draft beers are. They have also started rating if they carry a cider those pubs, which for those of us who are gluten sensitive becomes really important because we can drink cider, not so much the beer. However, there is now a list of breweries in the UK, and it is an extensive list that make gluten-free brews that the camera guide people say are actually really rather good, which is a relief because some of them taste like pond water that we get here in the States. So, and not, not clear pond water either. (laughs) The kind of vaguely greenish-brown pond water is more what it tastes like. So it's really, really repulsive. But this is great news. Now, the camera guide doesn't list gluten-free beers at the pubs because gluten-free beers so far are only in bottle. They're never on draft. Um, I think there's actually some technical reasons why that is the case. It's not a sales problem as much as it is um, how the beer is made problem if I understood what the guy at the camera guide said to me. But I've put links to all of this up because these are useful, you know, useful travel hints, uh, especially for those of us who are going to be going to the UK this fall. And there, there's still a couple of seats left. I know there's always a lull with travel arrangements right before and right after Christmas because before Christmas, people are kind of waiting to make plans and after Christmas they're recovering from having made plans so you know the the reservations are going to pick up pretty soon so if you want to get a spot reserved for you go make a reservation you don't have to you know finally commit until later this year all the information is available at craftlit.com which will right now take you to the Libsyn page where you can get a link to holiday travel under normal circumstances in the upper right corner of the show notes, the regular pretty show notes that look like a newspaper, there is a link to holiday travel and you'll be able to get the information there. Oh, I forgot. I found Finnish translators. I found one that was a Finnish knitting translation page, but then I also found a knitting translation page where you plug in what language you need to translate from or translate to and a ton of languages are there. So you plug in like knit or you plug in pearl or you plug in row and you can find out what that is in German. So if you have a very old pattern or a pattern that you found, you know, at the Goodwill and it's quite clearly not in English, you don't have to throw it away or give it away. Um, Now there is a way to translate, which I was very excited about. So all of that is linked to on the show notes. And, um, Ooh, our incentive winners. Our incentive winners for December. We have Sweater 101 is going to Melanie. Melanie, you get the signed uh, first reprint edition 
of Sweater 101. And Robin, Robin, you are getting 101 wire earrings. And Andrew, I drew your name. You're getting stitch markers. So I hope you're a knitter. (laughs) You can tell that this is completely random because not everyone would be brave enough to say that Andrew was getting a set of stitch markers. I'm very excited about that, though, because we are egalitarian after all, right? Darn tootin'. It's about time we get some men showing up in the joint. Actually, we've had men in the joint for quite a while, which I love, because every once in a while, you send an email, and it makes me very, very happy. And on the whole, December incentive note, we do have a January incentive book. This will be the one that I reviewed a few episodes ago called Enchanted Adornments, Creating Mixed Media Jewelry with Metal Clay, Wire, Resin, and More. This is an interweave book, as all of our books are, whenever we can. This is by Cynthia Thornton. She does have a video I found on YouTube that shows her making some of these things. And um, there was only one, though. The book is lovely. As, uh, as I said before, it's really, it's very creative with some really cool projects in it. And that will be the incentive book for those of you who donate in January 2010. Ah, so Flatland. Flatland. We are, as I said, in the last two sections or two chapters of the, really the introductory chunk of this book. And I'm going to split them up like I, like I tend to do uh, because there's so much that goes on here. This first chapter today, chapter 11, is called Concerning Our Priests, which shouldn't surprise you because it is the one thing that he's been talking around a lot, but he hasn't really dealt with all of the geometric and societal issues that you have been bringing up on Ravelry and in emails to me. So, that being said, uh, he does he does deal a little bit more with uh, the math of this circle because, of course, we, we know that they really aren't actual circles. They're polygonal, they're polygons with an enormous number of sides that are very, 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 very small. So if you were to touch one, you probably could feel that it is not actually truly round. But of course, in Flatland, the priestly class does not get felt up, as it were. You know, that's just, that would be too rude. And he's already talked about that kind of societal thing. Um, he He's also, you know, there are he does talk about this at one point, that when he's talking about the priestly class, it's not um, priestly in a um, modern sense of the word, in that they are limited to a religious presence in society. That's more a function of priest in a, a more ancient sense. Um, so he'll be explaining explaining that as well. I don't, I don't know that... His description of priests in Flatland here is particularly Victorian. I know it's certainly that in Victorian England, I mean, he he was both um, a man of the cloth 
Church of England, as well as a mathematics professor. You know, he had a life outside of his life in the church. Um, and and he was looked up to as an authority and, and a very respected figure, both in and out of his um, sanctuary. So, I think that's part of why he went there with the priest thing, but also because it, it actually does perform an important function for um, the society in Flatland that he created. So, I thought that was that was pretty important to uh, pay attention to. He does get into some math in this one, but it's not difficult math, and it's not nothing that you're going to have to draw pictures of. Um, there are a couple of things that happen in here that seem kind of, what is it called, eugenics? The, like, trying to alter someone's genes to make them a more perfect, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, th- you know, it's that kind of, or, or like, you know, Going in, they talk about this. I don't think anybody's done it, thank God, yet. Um, if you're going to have a girl baby going in and altering the gene stru- the genetic structure of the fetus so that it actually winds up being a boy, um, that, that kind of thing. Except, of course, in Flatland, the goal is to move more and more towards being a circle. And you can imagine, in this case, it would be, you know, kind of adding sides just kind of creepy. Um, so there, there is a discussion of that in, um, in this chapter of Flatland. This first one that we're going to listen to today is rather brief, and then we're going to do chapter 12, which is of the doctrine of our priests. So first here, I'm going to play you chapter 11, or section 11, about the priests. Part 1, sections 11 and 12 of Flatland. Recording by Ruth Golding Flatland, A Romance of Many Dimensions by Edwin Abbott Abbott Part 1, Section 11, Concerning Our Priests It is high time that I should pass from these brief and discursive notes about things in Flatland to the central event of this book, my initiation into the mysteries of space. That is my subject. All that has gone before is merely preface. For this reason, I must omit many matters of which the explanation would not, I flatter myself, be without interest for my readers. As, for example, our method of propelling and stopping ourselves, although destitute of feet. The means by which we give fixity to structures of wood, stone or brick although, of course, we have no hands, nor can we lay foundations as you can, nor avail ourselves of the lateral pressure of the earth. The manner in which the rain originates in the intervals between our various zones, so that the northern regions do not intercept the moisture from falling on the southern. The nature of our hills and mines, our trees and vegetables, our seasons and harvests. Our alphabet and method of writing adapted to our linear tablets. These and a hundred other details of our physical existence I must pass over. Nor do I mention them now except to indicate to my readers that their omission proceeds not from forgetfulness on the part of the author, but from his regard for the time of the reader. Yet, before I proceed to my legitimate subject, some few final remarks will no doubt be expected by my readers upon those pillars and mainstays of the constitution of Flatland, the controllers of our conduct and shapers of our destiny, 
the objects of universal homage and almost of adoration, need I say that I mean our circles or priests. When I call them priests, let me not be understood as meaning no more than the term denotes with you. With us, our priests are administrators of all business, art, and science, directors of trade, commerce, generalship, architecture, engineering, education, statesmanship, legislature, morality, theology. Doing nothing themselves, they are the causes of everything worth doing that is done by others. Although popularly every one called a circle is deemed a circle, yet among the better educated classes it is known that no circle is really a circle, but only a polygon with a very large number of very small sides. In proportion to the number of the sides, the polygon approximates to a circle, and when the number is very great, say for example three or four hundred, it is extremely difficult for the most delicate touch to feel any polygonal angles. Let me say, rather, it would be difficult, for, as I have shown above, recognition by feeling is unknown among the highest society, and to feel a circle would be considered a most audacious insult. This habit of abstention from feeling in the best society enables a circle the more easily to sustain the veil of mystery in which from his earliest years he is wont to enwrap the exact nature of his perimeter or circumference. Three feet being the average perimeter, it follows that, in a polygon of three hundred sides, each side will be no more than the hundredth part of a foot in length, or little more than the tenth part of an inch, and in a polygon of six or seven hundred sides, the sides are little larger than the diameter of a spaceland pinhead. It is always assumed, by courtesy, that the chief circle for the time being has ten thousand sides. The ascent of the posterity of the circles in the social scale is not restricted, as it is among the lower regular classes, by the law of nature which limits the increase of sides to one in each generation. If it were so, the number of sides in a circle would be a mere question of pedigree and arithmetic, and the four hundred and ninety-seventh descendant of an equilateral triangle would necessarily be a polygon with five hundred sides. But this is not the case. Nature's law prescribes two antagonistic decrees affecting circular propagation. First, that as the race climbs higher in the scale of development, so development shall proceed at an accelerated pace. Second, that in the same proportion the race shall become less fertile. Consequently, in the home of a polygon of four or five hundred sides, it is rare to find a sun. More than one is never seen. On the other hand, the sun of a five hundred-sided polygon has been known to possess five hundred and fifty or even six hundred sides. Art also steps in to help the process of the higher evolution. Our physicians have discovered that the small and tender sides of an infant polygon of the higher class can be fractured and his whole frame reset with such exactness that a polygon of two or three hundred sides sometimes, by no means always, 
for the process is attended with serious risk, but sometimes overleaps two or three hundred generations, and, as it were, doubles at a stroke the number of his progenitors and the nobility of his descent. Many a promising child is sacrificed in this way. Scarcely one out of ten survives. Yet so strong is the parental ambition among those polygons who are, as it were, on the fringe of the circular class, that it is very rare to find a nobleman of that position in society who has neglected to place his first-born son in the circular neotherapeutic gymnasium before he has attained the age of a month. One year determines success or failure. At the end of that time, the child has, in all probability, added one more to the tombstones that crowd the neotherapeutic cemetery. But on rare occasions, a glad procession bears back the little one to his exultant parents, no longer a polygon, but a circle, at least by courtesy. And a single instance of so blessed a result induces multitudes of polygonal parents to submit to similar domestic sacrifices, which have a dissimilar issue. So kind of creepy, right? That they wind up sacrificing their firstborn. You know, they'll try it once to um, try and get him into the circle class. Which goes nicely into section 12. Uh, one of the things that Abbott is stressing in this chapter many times, one of the things to listen to is um, the idea of kind of a, a pedigree or you need that your, your family background or your rank or your class has way more to do with how you behave. And in this chapter, he gets into some really great discussions of free will and um, a very modern discussion of one's responsibility to one's behavior. And I, I, I love this because, of course, one of the things that he is trying to say is that heredity or class or privilege or all of those things, they aren't necessarily really good indicators of what kind of person you're going to be. You can have real scoundrels born to very good breeding lines, just as you can have a completely nutty dog out of a very good father and mother. So, you know, nature has a way. However, there is a wonderful passage that I am, I am actually going to read this to you. And I, I have, as you know, tried very hard not to read um, the annotations in this book very often. However, this time I am reading it for a different reason. This time I am reading it because I think some of you will want to go and buy a book by Ian Stewart called Figments of Reality. This is a book that he wrote with Jack Cohen. And in chapter nine, they have a chapter called, We Wanted to Have a Chapter on Free Will, But We Decided Not To. So here it is, which I just love. So this is a rather lengthy passage about this this idea that you know that um, some some people are finding it uh, a facile argument to blame their genetics for their misbehavior 
So I want to read this to you because you're going to hear very similar arguments being tossed about, not arguments, but uh, reporting done by a square in Flatland. And since I know some of you listen with little kids, there is one rather gruesome moment of um, description coming up in about a minute and a half. So you may want to pause for a moment or turn the volume down. There we go. So what, uh, what Mr. Stewart says is, and again, this is in the book, Figments of Reality. In today's Western culture, the question of free will is being obscured by an unfortunate side effect of the simple-minded mental image of DNA as a blueprint, a kind of genetic determinism. This adds genetic reinforcement to a growing cultural tendency for people not to accept responsibility for their own actions, which in a sense is an attempt to deny that they have any free will. For instance, in Cyprus, three soldiers who raped a young woman and beat her to death with a spade pled in their defense that they were so drunk that they did not know what they were doing. The Cypriot legal system wasn't impressed, but the defense lawyer clearly thought it was worth a try. In the very near future, if it has not happened already, a man will get drunk, kill somebody, and be acquitted because while drunk, he is not responsible for his actions. In only the slightly more distant future, a man will kill somebody over a trivial argument and be acquitted because he possesses a, quote, gene for aggression, unquote. Those who lack a gene for aggression, yet fight back when attacked, will have no such excuse. If they are unfortunate enough also to possess a gene for rational decision-making, they will receive punitive sentences. The underlying idea that gross human characters such as aggression are somehow caused by a single segment of genetic code stems from a grievous misunderstanding of human development. The genome is more a recipe than a blueprint, and the ingredients and the skill of the cook are at least as important. A true human being has free will, in the only sense that matters, the relation of an individual to their culture, and is in control of its own destiny. A man who knows he gets aggressive when drunk and kills while drunk can try to excuse the murder, but he has no excuse for the drunkenness that he himself claims caused him to kill, because when he chose to get drunk, he was sober. People who cannot control their tempers when drunk should consider themselves as being under a greater social obligation not to drink than those who can. Far from being a defense, drunkenness should compound the crime. Apparently, it's okay to disown responsibility for wielding a knife when drunk, but not for wielding a car. Even if you think that all human behavior is ultimately genetically determined, that still proves no reason for excusing murderers. If genes do actually correspond to characters, then as well as there being a gene for aggression, there must also be a gene for controlling one's aggression a gene for avoiding getting into tense situations, a gene for considering the effects of one's actions on other people, a gene for taking responsibility. And if you are unfortunate enough to lack all of these genes, and I put you behind bars, don't complain. It's just that I happen to have a gene for incarcerating killers. It's not my fault. Isn't that lovely? Doesn't that make you want to run out and read this book, Figments of Reality? I just thought that was marvelous. And especially now with all of the... uh, A high school education of science is no longer an education of science. I am so frustrated listening to people in the media who probably got, you know, Ds in their 
earth science and biology classes and never made it further than that, who, who think that they can, you know, have any kind of meaningful public discourse on any science that's going on in the world right now. And they're just making such a botched mess of the whole thing. And, and this just does a beautiful job, I thought, of kind of explaining one of those places where we really just, we don't talk about this stuff very well in public. And some of it is the fault of scientists. They don't speak to muggles very well. And it's, it's a rare scientist who can, you know, talk in metaphors, as Abbott does, in a way that communicates to the rest of us who don't think like scientists. We need more people like Abbott badly right now. Uh, and it's, it's this kind of half understanding of scientific theory or even what the word theory means or mathematics or, in this case, genetics. You know, it, it leads us to some really dangerously simplified um, conventional wisdoms that are just flat out wrong. And I, I thought that Ian Stewart did a beautiful job with that. And Abbott does his, his own version of that in this chapter, as, as you will soon see. Um, it is a very Victorian chapter in that there are things that he alludes to that one mustn't discuss publicly because they would be embarrassing. Um, he, he also gets further into the breeding thing. You'll also hear, and this is because our reader has the first edition text. She says dodecahedron, and it was changed, as I said before, to um, dodecagon in later uh, issues uh, or later revisions of the book. Um, a dodecagon is the perimeter. A dodecahedron is a solid, and we are dealing with perimeters in flatland because you know because it's lines you can't have cheap okay um one other thing that i wanted to let you know just because i think many people don't know really how bad things were for women but also i think people don't really know how far our educational system has fallen until you hear something like this. Uh, this this comes from, um, well, Abbott first. In 1883, Abbott wrote a book called Hints on Home Teaching, where he was really pushing that girls needed to be taught, like boys. And here, in this is the 1836 curriculum of the City of London School, which was a progressive school, admittedly, but this was fairly common for a curriculum. You would, as a child you know, this is like sixth grade, seventh grade, you would be reading English grammar and composition, Latin, Greek, French, writing, arithmetic, bookkeeping, elements of mathematics and natural philosophy, geography, natural history, ancient and modern history, choral singing, and chemistry. Optionally, you could also, also take Hebrew, German, Spanish, Italian, and drawing. And if you were an advanced student or a real grind, you could also take Latin and Greek poetry, higher mathematics, physics, logic, and ethics. Okay? Now, I would posit that children today are at least as capable as children in, say, 1836. And if given decent instruction 
and perhaps they spent fewer hours in front of the television and more reading Greek, um, they could easily accomplish all of this. I mean, don't you find it earth-shaking how little our kids are learning in school, how little we learned in school compared to that curriculum? And of course, the corollary is what were the girls learning? They were learning music and comportment and dance and French. And, you know, maybe you could take a math class. You know, maybe, maybe geometry, maybe a little algebra. If you were lucky and taught at home, because there really weren't any schools that would teach that to you out in the real world. So uh, Abbott, being a very progressive fellow and feeling that education was important for women, would have been pushing a curriculum very similar to the one I just read for women and um, held that, that women and mathematics were not enemies. And I really appreciate that. I thought, oh, I just, I just love this guy so much. Um, and in this chapter, which really does, again, deal with both the priests and the, the women in, uh, in Flatland, there's this wonderful, totally twisted satiric moment that happens towards the end. Is it towards the end? Yeah, it's towards the end of the chapter where A Square starts to describe how uh, men and women have kind of been factionalized. This was a decision of the priests, and they now practically speak separate languages. And, of course, A Square, he is not Abbott. A Square has a very limited reaction to this, and it is rather shocking after his description of how horrible this is to hear what his complaint is about it. And of course, like any good satirist, like like Twain does and, and Jonathan Swift does, you you get to have that moment of revulsion where you understand the point the author is making, not because the character has that reaction, but because the character's reaction isn't the one you're expecting. And therefore, you get to have that moment of, oh my goodness, he can't be serious. It's just, it's wonderful. And, you know, when you get satire like this, it's it's revelatory you know it just makes your fingers tingle it's just great and it this moment about this whole kind of mathematics discussion or how women can't perform at the same level as men reminded me of in um not too long ago the um harvard the president of harvard um summers said that uh just biologically women and men uh, are different men Men can do math and women can't. And it's just something biological. And people, you know, went bazonkers about the whole thing. I've linked to an article about what he said, just in case you didn't see it when it happened, because some of you are so young. Uh, It's really shocking that, you know, anything like that could have been said in our modern world. But Abbott is relevant. There's just no other way to get around it. So, I think I'm looking at my notes. I think that is that is it. This is just a really, really wonderful way to end this first satiric section of Flatland before we get into the actual action of the story. Not that I think this part has been boring, but, you know, we aren't even there yet. So, here we go with chapter or section 12 of Flatland. Section 12 of the doctrine of our priests. As to the doctrine of the circles, 
it may briefly be summed up in a single maxim, attend to your configuration. Whether political, ecclesiastical, or moral, all their teaching has for its object the improvement of individual and collective configuration, with special reference, of course, to the configuration of the circles, to which all other objects are subordinated. It is the merit of the circles that they have effectually suppressed those ancient heresies which led men to waste energy and sympathy in the vain belief that conduct depends upon will, effort, training, encouragement, praise, or anything else but configuration. It was Pantocyclus, the illustrious circle mentioned above as the queller of the colour of oat, who first convinced mankind that configuration makes the man, that if, for example, you are born an isosceles with two uneven sides, you will assuredly go wrong unless you have them made even, for which purpose you must go to the isosceles hospital. Similarly, if you are a triangle or square, or even a polygon born with any irregularity, you must be taken to one of the regular hospitals to have your disease cured. Otherwise you will end your days in the state prison, or by the angle of the state executioner. All faults or defects, from the slightest misconduct to the most flagitious crime, Pentocyclus attributed to some deviation from perfect regularity in the bodily figure, caused perhaps, if not congenital, by some collision in a crowd, by neglect to take exercise, or by taking too much of it, or even by a sudden change of temperature resulting in a shrinkage or expansion in some too susceptible part of the frame. Therefore, concluded that illustrious philosopher, neither good conduct nor bad conduct is a fit subject in any sober estimation for either praise or blame. For why should you praise, for example, the integrity of a square who faithfully defends the interests of his client, when you ought, in reality, rather to admire the exact precision of his rectangles? Or again, why blame a lying, thievish isosceles when you ought rather to deplore the incurable inequality of his sides? Theoretically, this doctrine is unquestionable, but it has practical drawbacks. In dealing with an isosceles, if a rascal pleads that he cannot help stealing because of his unevenness, you reply that for that very reason, because he cannot help being a nuisance to his neighbours, you, the magistrate, cannot help sentencing him to be consumed, and there's an end of the matter. But in little domestic difficulties, where the penalty of consumption or death is out of the question, this theory of configuration sometimes comes in awkwardly and I must confess that occasionally, when one of my own hexagonal grandsons pleads, as an excuse for his disobedience, that a sudden change of the temperature has been too much for his perimeter, and that I ought to lay the blame not on him, but on his configuration, which can only be strengthened by abundance of the choicest sweetmeats, I neither see my way logically to reject, nor practically to accept, his conclusions. For my own part, I find it best to assume that a good sound scolding or castigation has some latent and strengthening influence on my grandson's configuration, 
though I own that I have no grounds for thinking so. At all events, I am not alone in my way of extricating myself from this dilemma, for I find that many of the highest circles, sitting as judges in law courts, use praise and blame towards regular and irregular figures. And in their homes, I know by experience that, when scolding their children, they speak about right or wrong as vehemently and passionately as if they believed that these names represented real existences, and that a human figure is really capable of choosing between them. Consistently carrying out their policy of making configuration the leading idea in every mind, the circles reverse the nature of that commandment which in spaceland regulates the relations between parents and children. With you, children are taught to honour their parents. With us, next to the circles, who are the chief object of universal homage, a man is taught to honour his grandson, if he has one, or if not, his son. By honour, however, is by no means meant indulgence but a reverent regard for their highest interests. And the circles teach that the duty of fathers is to subordinate their own interests to those of posterity, thereby advancing the welfare of the whole state, as well as that of their own immediate descendants. The weak point in the system of the circles, if a humble square may venture to speak of anything circular as containing any element of weakness, appears to me to be found in their relations with women. As it is of the utmost importance for society that irregular births should be discouraged, it follows that no woman who has any irregularities in her ancestry is a fit partner for one who desires that his posterity should rise by regular degrees in the social scale. Now, the irregularity of a male is a matter of measurement, but as all women are straight, and therefore visibly regular, so to speak, one has to devise some other means of ascertaining what I may call their invisible irregularity. That is to say, their potential irregularities as regards possible offspring. This is effected by carefully kept pedigrees, which are preserved and supervised by the state, and without a certified pedigree no woman is allowed to marry. Now it might have been supposed that a circle, proud of his ancestry and regardful for a posterity which might possibly issue hereafter in a chief circle, would be more careful than any other to choose a wife who had no blot on her escutcheon. But it is not so. The care in choosing a regular wife appears to diminish as one rises in the social scale. Nothing would induce an aspiring isosceles who had hopes of generating an equilateral son, to take a wife who reckoned a single irregularity among her ancestors. A square or pentagon, who is confident that his family is steadily on the rise, does not inquire above the five-hundredth generation. A hexagon, or dodecahedron, is even more careless of the wife's pedigree. But a circle has been known deliberately to take a wife who has had an irregular great-grandfather, and all because of some slight superiority of luster, or because of the charms of a low voice, which, with us, even more than with you, is thought an excellent thing in woman. 
Such ill-judged marriages are, as might be expected, barren if they do not result in positive irregularity or in diminution of sides. But none of these evils have hitherto proved sufficiently deterrent. The loss of a few sides in a highly developed polygon is not easily noticed, and is sometimes compensated by a successful operation in the neotherapeutic gymnasium, as I have described above. And the circles are too much disposed to acquiesce in infecundity as a law of the superior development. Yet, if this evil be not arrested, the gradual diminution of the circular class may soon become more rapid, and the time may not be far distant when, the race being no longer able to produce a chief circle, the constitution of flatland must fall. One other word of warning suggests itself to me, though I cannot so easily mention a remedy, and this also refers to our relations with women. About three hundred years ago, it was decreed by the chief circle that, since women are deficient in reason but abundant in emotion, they ought no longer to be treated as rational, nor receive any mental education. The consequence was that they were no longer taught to read, nor even to master arithmetic enough to enable them to count the angles of their husband or children, and hence they sensibly declined during each generation in intellectual power. And this system of female non-education, or quietism, still prevails. My fear is that, with the best intentions, this policy has been carried so far as to react injuriously on the male sex. For the consequence is that, as things now are, we males have to lead a kind of bilingual, and I may almost say bi-mental existence. With the women we speak of love, duty, right, wrong, pity, hope, and other irrational and emotional conceptions which have no existence, and the fiction of which has no object except to control feminine exuberances. But among ourselves and in our books we have an entirely different vocabulary, and I may almost say idiom. Love then becomes the anticipation of benefits. Duty becomes necessity or fitness and other words are correspondingly transmuted. Moreover, among women, we use language implying the utmost deference for their sex, and they fully believe that the chief circle himself is not more devoutly adored by us than they are. But behind their backs, they are both regarded and spoken of, by all except the very young, as being little better than mindless organisms. Our theology also in the women's chambers is entirely different from our theology elsewhere. Now, my humble fear is that this double training, in language as well as in thought, imposes somewhat too heavy a burden upon the young, especially when, at the age of three years old, they are taken from the maternal care and taught to unlearn the old language, except for the purpose of repeating it in the presence of their mothers and nurses, and to learn the vocabulary and idiom of science. Already, methinks, I discern a weakness in the grasp of mathematical truth at the present time, as compared with the more robust intellect of our ancestors three hundred years ago. 
I say nothing of the possible danger if a woman should ever surreptitiously learn to read and convey to her sex the result of her perusal of a single popular volume, nor of the possibility that the indiscretion or disobedience of some infant male might reveal to a mother the secrets of the logical dialect. On the simple ground of the enfeebling of the male intellect, I rest this humble appeal to the highest authorities to reconsider the regulations of female education. End of section 12 and of part 1. Isn't that interesting that that's how Abbott ends it, with this appeal? And of course it's inside this book, which is clearly fictional and and you know, almost supernatural in its in his ability to imagine this kind of world. And yet this is how he how he chooses to end it with this plea to educate women. Oh, I just love this man so much. So that's the end of the first section of Flatland. We really don't have all that much more to go. In fact, we will be done with Flatland, unless disaster strikes, we will be done with Flatland before Valentine's Day. And then we're going to start on something Valentine's-y. I've decided I'm, I'm switching stuff up. I wanted to do something girly after Flatland. Girly, girly. And I wasn't really sure what. And then I was talking to Meg of the March Hare, and she had a suggestion. And so I'm going to surprise you with that later. And then we are going to, um, let's see. I actually looked at the calendar today and figured this all out. Um, the next book will only take us until mid-June. And then from mid-June to the end of the year, we will do Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. So I promised we'd do it, and we will. And I know there are some of you who have said that over your dead body, would you listen to Twain? And I just hope that I've convinced you that, you know, I make pretty decent choices. And if I can do Tale of Two Cities and find merit in it, which I did, you can probably find something to like in Twain especially Connecticut Yankee. It is so not Bugs Bunny <laughs> at all. You're going to be so surprised if you haven't read it before. All right, with that, I'm going to go prepare for my classes for tomorrow because they're kind of hard this semester. I'm hoping I survive them. Good, good kids, though, so far. I'm very happy with them. I've met them all for 50 minutes apiece. So, you know, how accurate can I be in my assessment? But it's, it's going to be good. I'm happy. And on that pleasant note, I will leave you. I hope you have a wonderful week. I will speak to you again soon with the beginning of the next part of Flatland. And um, in the meantime, have a great week. And, you know, stay warm if you're in one of those places that just isn't warm right now. Or come visit me in Tucson. Let me know if you're going to be here. Have a great time. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, and The Loop Knittery in New Zealand at loopknittery.co.nz. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. 
Craftlet can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. 